0: Luke chapter 17 and verse 1, and we'll read from verse 1 through to verse number 10. Then said he unto the disciples, It is impossible, but that offences will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves if I... Brother trespass against thee, rebuke him, and if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. And the apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If he had faith as a grain of mustard seed, you might say unto this uh, sycamine tree, Be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. But which of you, having a servant ploughing or feeding cattle, will say unto him, By and by, when he's come from the field, go and sit down to meet, and will not rather say unto him, Make ready, wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant, because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not that great old-fashioned word. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which were commanded you, say, We are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Now turn with me as well, please, over to 2 Corinthians and chapter 2. Reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 5. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, so that contrary wise ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether ye be obedient in all things. To whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes forgave I it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now we trust that God will bless that reading and uh, scattered verses that I'll refer to as I raise some issues and hopefully um, provide some biblical answers. I suppose one of the other scriptures that I could and perhaps should have turned you to would have been Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31 and 32. Let me just quote that to you. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and slander be put away from you along with all malice and be ye kind to one another tender hearted forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you let me give you a quote our forgiveness of others is modelled upon God's forgiveness of sinners whom he forgives conditioned upon their repentance God does not forgive apart from repentance neither should we In the event of a tragedy that involves the loss of human life brought about by human sin, it is actually wrong for Christians to call for immediate forgiveness in the absence of repentance. Such a call both cheapens and misunderstands the biblical doctrine of forgiveness. There is what some people call therapeutic forgiveness. You won't find it in the Bible but it is very much, if you search around the word forgiveness on the internet, you get this expression and this concept that the chief aim of forgiveness is to affect the way that you feel. And that forgiveness has at its core feelings. So that when most people perhaps, or perhaps when people say that they forgive, what they actually mean is that they have managed to get to a stage where their feelings have altered. From extreme bitterness to something else. And they do not feel the same as they did about a situation or a person. The problem with that is that situations can then arise where these feelings return. And so that is not biblical forgiveness. We've seen, and let me just point out for those who weren't here last night, we've seen uh, from our definition of forgiveness that there are two basic concepts when you come to God's forgiveness. Number one, the attitude and offer of forgiveness through the gospel. That is what is preached, that is what is freely available, that is what is made available to all, to any, to everyone in the preaching of the gospel and rightly so the good news of salvation and the invitation to receive God's forgiveness is the good news of salvation but the second part of God's forgiveness is not only the kindness and the desire to provide forgiveness which is the gospel but it is also the actual act of forgiveness which is experienced by those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, likewise, our forgiveness is also defined by these same two elements. We've been quoting scriptures right throughout our studies that shows us that we have a duty and a burden, a responsibility to forgive as God has forgiven us. That is how God has forgiven us. His disposition is toward us in love. He has provided forgiveness and made it available. And we in repentance and faith have received it. And it has become effective in our relationship. For our relationship with God is restored. The burden of sin has been removed. And the enjoyment of that relationship can commence. True forgiveness takes place. We saw that there are two main words used in our New Testament that convey those two aspects of forgiveness. One of the words means to graciously or freely give. And the other word means to remove or to take away in the sense usually of the removal of a debt. Therefore, these two words and also an understanding of God's forgiveness bring us to this. That we as individuals, as Christians, ought to be tender-hearted in our attitude. We ought to be willing to forgive those who offend us and sin against us. And we are actually to forgive those who come and repent and ask and seek that forgiveness. So you have that disposition that desires forgiveness, desires healing within a relationship, desires the restoration of that relationship. That heart of love and affection and and that disposition ought to characterise us all all as believers. And we ought to openly offer that forgiveness to those who sin against us. And if it's being received by those who sin against us, then that relationship can truly Be restored and healed. Forgiveness in the Bible is bilateral, it's not unilateral. It's something that happens between two parties. And as I said before, I'll say it again, it's always connected to the theme of reconciliation. I quote Forgiveness is a figurative handshake. Now, you cannot shake hands alone. For forgiveness to happen, you need to seek out the offending party or the offending party or the offended party, sorry, if you are the offender. Extend your hand and pray that the other party will offer his or hers to you. Let's ask a question then. Can, is it possible, should it be true to say that forgiveness is conditional? Well, let us reiterate this, that God is absolutely good and righteous and always forgives conditionally. Now, it's free. Romans 6.23 tells us it's free. It's a free gift. It's been purchased by the blood of Christ. But it is not a universally dispensed gift. It is received by those who come in repentance and faith so that it is freely offered and it is received in repentance and faith. Now, of course, when you think about the ongoing forgiveness of God for the transgressions of his people, it's on the same principle. 1 John 1 verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all iniquity. Again, it's not just a blanket absolution from the defilement of sin. It is upon those who come in confession. No confession, no forgiveness. Now we're clear, I trust, about that when we think about the gospel because any other gospel is universalism. Any other gospel says that the death of Christ means the forgiveness of all, regardless of their attitude to God, that there's no such place as hell and that everyone is going out and everything will be okay in eternity and so on. It's the Rob Bell type of thing that was taught maybe two or three years ago all over the internet. Universalism. But it's not biblical. And so if that is true in relation to God's forgiveness, which is conditional, then Christians are called to forgive as God forgives. Not automatically forgiving every offence in some kind of blanket absolution that's actually superficial and does not last, but rather, we are called to forgive as God forgave. Matthew 6:12, Ephesians 4:32 and so on. And the for- conditional forgiveness of God, 1 John one verse nine, John three verse 36, is the model which we ought to follow. We ought to, in fact, we're obliged to in fact, we are indebted to God. So that we must forgive those who come to us and seek resolution of problems. We must deal with issues and not just forget about them and pretend that they'll go away. We cannot do that. We are obliged to seek and to offer forgiveness. And if it is offered to receive it, that the relationships might be restored. You say, well, what about justice? Because that's one of the big sticking points when it comes to forgiveness. There is a sense that if I have been sinned against or done something um, and someone uh, comes to me, if I forgive them, then there's. Now, what about justice? What about that sin? What about that, that harm that the person did to me? It's outstanding. And it could well be that that will rankle with me and burn away with me. But, but, but listen, see, with regard to the issue of justice and our relationships, take, I can't go through it all because we don't have time, but take on board what we were looking at in the previous section. Perspective's everything. But even as well as perspective, understand this, that vengeance is a matter for God. Always. Always. Forgiveness is not about vengeance. Vengeance belongs to God. He will repay. That is true for the ungodly, but mind you, in relation to our conduct as believers, there is a day of accounting coming for us as well, every one of us. There is the judgment seat which we must face. And remember, Peter spoke about this sort of thing when he was speaking about suffering and the example of the Lord Jesus Christ the one who was willing to seek no vindication of himself, to seek no retaliation, the one who was willing to leave it all for another day who committed himself unto him that judges righteously. And there is an aspect of this that we must grapple with, that we must not stand upon our high horse seeking justice, seeking vengeance, seeking retribution, seeking vindication. As believers, we understand that that is in the hand of God, that he will bring that about in his time, and if not in time, then at that judgment seat, where all the wrongs will be righted. What about justice? You might think, well, you shouldn't even be speaking about justice. Then, you know, the judgment of those who hurt you and that kind of thing is not something to even think about. Well, actually, that's not true either, because Christians in the Bible take great comfort for knowing that justice belongs to God and he will repay. And for those poor saints over in these lands where they are suffering terrible deprivation and hardship and violence, it will be a comfort to them. It's bound to be a comfort to them to leave the matter of vengeance to God. To leave the matter of retribution to God. For vengeance is mine. I will repay, he says. And there is coming a day of accountability for all of these things. Bonhoeffer, that famous Christian writer who lost his life at the hands of the Nazis in Germany, said this, It is only when God's wrath and vengeance are hanging as grim realities over the heads of one's enemies that something of what it means to love and forgive them can touch our hearts. When we actually think what awaits People like that in eternity, Bonhoeffer said, writing from his prison cell, it is only then that something of what it means to love and forgive can touch our hearts. Is there a difference between offering and giving forgiveness? Yes, there is. I've said that the difference is the difference between the biblical gospel and universalism. Forgiveness is not something I can just do on my own, independent of the one who has either been hurt or whom I have hurt. So what do we learn? Let me just summarise some things. Is forgiveness a feeling? Is it an emotion? Is it a duty? What is it? Is it a decision? What is it? Well, let me summarise it first. God's grace is not free. His forgiveness is not free. It was purchased by Christ's suffering and death on the cross. The debt was paid. Second, God's removal of our sin and guilt, his forgiveness, is conditioned upon our repentance and faith in Christ. We've seen that repeatedly. Thirdly, once God has removed the burden of our sin, he promises never to remember it. He releases us from the moral obligation of that debt hell and the lake of fire are gone as far as we're concerned the burden is removed fourthly god doesn't necessarily remove all the consequences of sin when he forgives oh yes the penal eternal consequences are gone but not all the consequences There are consequences that we have to live with, the consequences of our sin. If we have broken things, if we have affected our physical bodies, if we have broken relationships and we can't fix them and all that kind of thing, if we have done things, if we've stolen and we're under penalty under the civil law for these things, there are consequences to sin that are not removed by God. We see that, for example, in the story of David and Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 12, Nathan confronts David about his murder of Uriah and sin with Bathsheba. And in verses 13 to 14, David repents. And Nathan responds to him in his repentance and says, The Lord has taken away your sin. There's forgiveness. You shall not die. However, However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. David, you're forgiven, but your child's going to die. How can God say in one breath, your sin has been taken away, and yet in the very next say that there are grievous consequences to what you've done? This is God's discipline of David as he sanctifies him and draws him closer to himself. And sometimes, you know, if I say something to a brother or do something to a brother and I go and I ask for their forgiveness, what I've done may be forgiven, but, you know, there may be consequences that flow out of that consequences that just can't be resolved by the forgiveness of the brother to me for what I've done consequences I have to deal with and so we need to understand this about forgiveness and we are called to forgive, we are called to have a gracious attitude a tender-hearted attitude. But we are also called not just to have an attitude that is tender-hearted, but to forgive and remove the burden, the problem that exists between us. Now, how do we do that? Remember, God does it by promising never to remember it. Now, that wouldn't be a problem to me. I can hardly remember anything. I mean, folk tell me things and I completely forget. I mean, it's a, one of the great qualifications of being an, an overseer. You even forget yourself. And so, you, you know, you don't need to tell, worry about who you tell things to. But that really, that's forgetfulness. That's, for, that's not what God, you know, forgetfulness is human frailty. Choosing never to remember is a divine attribute. There's a difference. But you see, God does that. He takes the burden away. He removes it. He promises to pardon and to remove our sins and all the graphic language that's used in Scripture. So, in a sense, that's how he forgives. But what about us? What about us? Could I suggest to you that we also need to make a promise when we forgive? People say, I'll forgive, but I'll never forget. That determination is a contradiction of language. People will say, Well, you know, I'll forget, but I'll never forgive. That also is unbiblical. Could I suggest to you that forgiveness requires an act of the will? Douglas and I were talking about this with Cory Ten Boom just a few minutes ago. An act of the will to do something is very difficult. One of the writers that I was reading in this summed up, and I appreciated how he summed it up, so I noted it. He says, You require to make a fourfold promise so that you might forgive as God forgives. Number one, I will not dwell on this. I will not dwell on this. Number two, I will not bring this up again and use it against you. Number three, I will never talk to anyone about this again. Number four, I will not let this hinder our relationship. Can I just repeat them? I will not dwell on this. I will not bring this up and use it against you. I will never talk to anyone about this again. And I will not let this stand between us in our relationship. You know, in those four promises, you have us doing to the best of our feeble ability what God does. When he removes the sin, when he forgives and the debt is gone. You know, we cannot do what God does. But insofar as we can, we need to make a promise. We need to make a commitment to remove the burden of sin. It may not eliminate all the consequences of that sin. But my attitude ought to be this. I'm not going to make that person pay for that any longer. It's gone. Finished. Well, another issue that arises as I was thinking about it is just this. What if I want to forgive someone but they won't repent? I want to forgive them but they won't come near me. They avoid me and they won't engage. And there are many situations in life where someone might not be willing to repent, yet you have a desire to move on with your life and put this behind you, and you've got a desire to resolve the thing and sort it. Listen, repeatedly in Proverbs is instruction about this, and God gives principles of what people say nowadays of conflict resolution. But this is what we're talking about, conflict resolution in the sphere of forgiveness. Proverbs 10 verse 12, Proverbs 17 verse 9 and similar verses speak about for example gossip and a vindictive spirit flow from hatred but love covers sin and keeps offences quiet. Listen to 1 Peter 4 verse 8, above all love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, doesn't boast, not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, it does not delight in evil, it rejoices with the truth, it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. You know, in these and other scriptures, God is teaching us how, not why, but how, we ought to show the love of Christ in our relationships with each other. We love each other by overlooking small offences. We do not make a mountain out of a molehill. We do not walk around seeking to be offended. We grow up spiritually. We act like adults and mature people. We love by not getting angry easily, so we don't flare up, we don't get angry, we, we discipline ourselves not to be that person. We love by also, now listen to this, refusing to gossip about the offences of others. This all in 1 Corinthians 13. And we love by not keeping records of the sins of others. You know, we don't delight in keeping in the sticky side of our brain every <clears throat> fault and failing of other people. This is covering over a multitude of sins. And this is the fundamental heart expression of the one who's willing to forgive. And that heart of love, in the way I've described, that takes that burden that has been upon your heart because of that problem and situation, and you know, that will remove that burden even if there is no forgiveness. What do you do when the memories keep coming back? (coughs) Romans 12 verse 18 says this, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace (coughs) with all men. You know, biblical repentance and forgiveness is God's appointed process for restoring relationships. There's no doubt about that. But you know, as far as it depends on you, if the other person will not engage with you, make sure your heart is a heart of love in the way that we've spoken. Make sure you're prepared to cover a multitude of sins. Make sure you have a heart that is willing to forgive, ready to forgive and as much as it is possible, do not leave problems unresolved, relationships cold or distant. As much as it is possible. And sometimes it just isn't possible. But listen, we have decisions to make in terms of relationship. We need to decide whether we should cover that past offence in love or whether we should go and speak to the other person about it. And that's a decision for us all to make case by case. It's interesting that the emphasis in dispute resolution, very often in Scripture, certainly in Matthew's Gospel, um, first of all starts with the person who has been offended. The person who has been offended. And one writer put it this way, which I quite like, if someone has stepped on your toes, well, the person with the sore toes... Is the person who's got to make the first move? That's quite childish, I know, but you know it just puts it in simple terms to me. You're the person who's got the sore toes. You need to make the first move. Remember that, if you would. Another question: What if I don't feel like forgiving? That's why I read in Luke chapter seventeen because that deals with that issue. What if I don't feel like forgiving? Well, you know, when you, and sometimes, often we use our feelings as an excuse to do all sorts of things, but the 70 times 7 thing comes up in this passage, and we've spoken about that um, earlier today, and it's just too much, so the disciples react, and what they react by saying is this, Lord, increase our faith. Now, that might be how you feel. 70 times 7 is too much. I am not spiritual enough i don't have faith to do that well you know when i read this it dawned on me that the lord jesus refuses to allow the not enough faith argument to stand he dismisses it this is not a matter of faith this is a matter of duty And he takes the faith argument and puts it to one side and rebukes them and says, listen, if you want to talk about faith in relation to this, all you need is faith as a grain of mustard seed. That's it. So you don't need an increase in faith. And the Lord Jesus tells them about the, the, the tree. If you've got faith, the size of a mustard seed, you can uproot trees, trees and throw them into the sea. And the Lord Jesus is saying, if you've got faith at all, then you ought to be able to do this. It's not a matter of faith. And then he tells them a story. And he tells them a story, if you read it down in Luke 17, a story about a servant. And, you know, for a long time, any time I read this story, I thought, you know, this is really harsh. There's something kind of unreasonable about this it seems but what the Lord is doing is telling them from a situation they would recognise and understand here's a servant that's been working all day, now I've never ploughed a field at all or looked after sheep or have any inclination to do either of them but I imagine it's quite onerous and so he says here's a servant who's been out in the fields all day and he's been ploughing a field and running after sheep and he must be exhausted, there he is in verse number 7 And what happens is he comes in from the field and the master is sitting there. There's no indication the master's been busy. He's just sitting there. Now, if you're the servant, you've got feelings. And if you're the servant, you can talk about faith all you like. But what they recognised was this, that the master requires the servant to prepare his food and then serve it to him as a matter of priority. That's what the relationship demanded. That was the duty that fell upon the servant. And it's only after the master has eaten, may the servant eat and relax, and after it all, he gets no extra thanks. None. Why? He has only done his duty. And in fact, to neglect that duty in any way would be sinning against the master. Do you get the point? The point is just this. We sometimes think when we forgive someone, we've soared into the spiritual heights. We're walking with giants. The reality is, it's a minimum expectation of Christian duty. It ought to characterise us all. And there's no extra thanks. It's baseline stuff. Basic Christianity. We shouldn't be seeking plaudits for it. It's the nuts and bolts of being a Christian. It's one of the great things about Christianity and the Lord Jesus tells that story because he's pressing his disciples to understand that your duty is more important than your feelings. Imagine if you're that servant and you have to come in, and you have to cook and you have to serve your master and you're working all day and your feelings would be crying out about the injustice of that and how you felt about it and all the rest of it and you'd done all the hard work you deserve to eat first. The reality is just this your duty it's a minimum requirement now in our western culture that's a foreign concept because of all our rights and all the rest of it but in that context they would understand that they would get that okay they would understand duty in a way perhaps we don't and so we need to forgive whether we feel like it or not because if we refuse we sin against our master So then let me just summarise this wee bit. We must cover offences in love or we must approach the offender in love. Either way, God requires that we graciously offer to forgive those who sin against us and to pursue reconciliation as far as it depends upon us. Now very quickly, let me turn to you to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, we'll be quick with this. Because Paul is now writing to an assembly in Corinth. And this assembly is one that he knew well. He'd spent 18 months there. And he's been in correspondence with them. And there's all sorts of problems. And his correspondence has had a very positive effect. And had actually caused a dramatic improvement within the assembly at Corinth. They'd been brought back to a place of loyalty, of commitment, and of obedience to divine truth. They'd done what was right, what had been required to have been done. You remember the man, and if this is referring to that man of 1 Corinthians 5, which I think it is, then they had righted a wrong, and they were now affirming through Titus their love for this man, for Paul, for the Lord, and their indignation over sin. They had been dealing with the offender. They confronted him about his sin. They brought him through the process of discipline all the way to repentance. And now verse 6 of chapter 2. Paul writes to them, Because we're such people of extremes. To begin with, there was no censure. Now he has to write to him because they swung the opposite way and he needs them to balance it up a bit he says in verse six sufficient to such a man is this punishment interesting word which was inflicted of many what's the word punishment it's only used here in the new testament now outside the new testament it referred to a legal penalty It also referred and was used within the context of commercial sanctions that were placed against a city or a nation by another city or nation. Very formal sanction. Now, it's got no reference to or connection to the idea of personal vengeance or private pain to be inflicted on an individual. It isn't describing some kind of vindictive attitude, but it is describing official sanction. Official penalty that due process produces, and it's called punishment. And that man had been punished. Who by? By the many. By the majority. By the local church. And that majority indicates that the church had imposed a just sanction upon this individual after due process, which was not vindictive, but was the right thing to do to deal with his conduct. And that proper response by the church to the man and his sin had been effective. It's a tremendous thing, actually, when that happens. And it's even better when no one hears about it. And someone can go through due process with a local assembly, biblically, that the biblical outcome may be accomplished, which is, of course, the restoration of the brother. Paul says, sufficient to such a man is this punishment. Now, in Matthew chapter 18, when again issues like this are raised, the Lord says this, Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven, which is saying that the decisions taken in discipline are ratified in heaven. Well, that's a very big thing, you know. Because it means that the decisions taken in this context by a local assembly have the authority of heaven upon them we ought not to break them nor undermine them and what is bound on earth is bound in heaven now they had done the binding and now it was time to do the loosing and so the loosing required to be done now because he had confessed, he had repented And now they must loose him from his sin. Now, they've not to be harsh, they've not to be unloving, they've not to browbeat him, they've not to put him under a lifetime of penance. You don't somehow make him eh, do something to expiate his sin or anything like that. You accept his repentance, it's enough. It's enough. And so in Ephesians 4 verse 13, you put this into practice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. He's a man who comes with a contrite, a broken heart, is repentant, and he ought to receive forgiveness, which is that the issue, the burden, should now be removed. It's no longer appropriate for it to be there. It should be gone. So in verse 7 he says, you ought to forgive. Now remember it's dependent upon repentance. We've seen that repeatedly until I'm sure you're fed up with saying it. There ought to be a willingness to provide it from the assembly when repentance is manifested and seen. And you ought rather to forgive. Now, I think there's a beautiful analogy of this in Leviticus chapter 13 with the law of leprosy. And when you read there, there was a leper, and there's four or five cases given, but there's something consistent with it. That once a leper was designated unclean, there were certain things to be done. Distance had to be put between him and others, and there had to be a recognition of the problem and all that kind of thing. But when the priest examined him and he was pronounced clean, he had to be forgiven. Forgiven. It's the idea. The problem had to be taken away, the burden had to be removed, the debt was gone in that sense, and he was to be taken back into the family, back into the community and restored. For he was now clean. Listen, when someone repents of their sin, and the defilement of their sin has been washed away, then they are as white as snow the blood of jesus christ his son cleanses us from all sin and the assembly ought to loose him from the sin and its penalty and restoration take place and positively he goes on and says this you ought to comfort him the negative side is we don't hold the sin against him we promise never to remember it, to bury it in the depths of the sea, to move it as far as the East is from the west. But positively, we've to come alongside and then build him up, lift him up, strengthen him, comfort him, so that he can now walk in disobedience. For if we do not, he will be swallowed up, consumed, not just by the punishment, but by the rejection. It means engulfed. It's used of waves that drown people. Listen, people can be drowned. By this sort of thing and they can sink without trace never to be seen again amongst the believers because they were dealt with appropriately but you know what the assembly didn't have any, any plan for the end of the thing for the restoration of the brother and lots of plans for the putting away but not so much for the reaching out and restoration and recovery and building up and comforting of the brother post-repentance. And so we might be quick to distance ourselves and maybe not just as quick to draw back together. In fact, he says in verse 8, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. That word reaffirm is a term that's used to legally ratify something. It means to make a formal declaration. I think in this situation there would be a very formal declaration at the beginning of the process. I think there's to be an equally formal declaration at the end of the process. You reaffirm your love. For this brother publicly, in the way that it was done at the beginning of the process, so these I think are some of the issues certainly that arose to me, and also we're thinking about the issue of assembly forgiveness. Now, that's all we'll do in this session, and we trust that God will bless His word to us. So, let's just take a moment or two to pray and to pray and give thanks for our time together and also for food and joy.